I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching to this um, online reading series that the Writers Guild of Alberta has been putting on. And I, before I start interviewing Karen and before I read her bio, I would like to thank the Guild for all the work they've done and their creativity and helpfulness. In, in putting this event on. So I will jump in now and to, in order to introduce Karen Spafford Fitz, I'm going to read her bio. Now, originally from Kingston, Ontario, Karen Spafford Fitz is a lifelong book lover who studied English languages and literature at Queen's University. After completing a second degree in education, she taught elementary and junior high students in Toronto and Edmonton. Now Karen soon began writing her own stories and is now the author of eight middle grade and young adult novels. Many are set in Edmonton and have been recognized as the year's best books by Resources Links Journal and the Canadian Children's Book Center. Karen's recent middle grade book, Volleyball Five, is a 2021 recommended title in the TD Summer Reading Club, Canada's biggest bilingual summer reading program for kids of all ages. Pickpocket, her latest teen novel, which we'll hear more about this evening, is an international thriller that takes place in, the, in Southern France. According to Kirkus Reviews, Pickpocket is an accessible, engaging tale of redemption. And the vivid setting of Old Nice is its own character. Pickpocket was long listed for the American Library in Paris Book Awards and as a title that deep as a title that deepens and stimulates an understanding of France and the French. Karen is currently the featured writer for Edmonton Public Library, and she continues to work on several new projects for young people in her Edmonton studio. And now I'll turn it over to Karen. Thank you. Okay, Karen. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for that lovely introduction. It's a pleasure to be here tonight with everybody speaking to you from traditional Treaty 6 territory here in Edmonton, Alberta. I'd like to start my presentation by also offering some thank yous. And as you said, Charlotte, the Writers Guild has just done a tremendous job as it always does for writers within the provinces, the province of, Alber of Alberta. They are an, an unwavering champion of Alberta writers. And I would especially like to thank 
uh, Jason Lee Norman and Sadie McGillivray for coordinating this online reading program. I am delighted and honored to be a part of it tonight. I would also like to thank Charlotte Cameron, who writes plays and novels inspired by historical figures and who has graciously joined me in conversation this evening as moderator. And I wanna mention also that last week at this time, Charlotte was sitting in the opposite chair. She was presenting as author and uh, was speaking about her new book called Love and Courage in Troubled Times. And congratulations, Charlotte, on your new title. And once again, thank you for being here with me this evening. I would also like to thank Orca Book Publishers of Victoria, British Columbia, I knew from the outset that this story was in great hands with Orca Books and especially with my editor, Tanya Trafford, who shares my great love of France. As for Pickpocket, the book that I'll be chatting about tonight, I'll start by saying that in some ways it's quite a departure from what I usually uh, write. Uh, my previous seven books have all been set in Alberta. Um, in fact, most of them happen right here in Edmonton, where I've now lived for over 20 years. Uh, Pickpocket, though, starts in eastern Canada, actually in my hometown of Kingston, Ontario, although I don't name it in the book. It does start in Kingston, and then it very quickly moves to France. So this is my first international story, and I'm really excited about that. This book also differs from my previous titles in how the story came to be. For me, usually my stories start to develop in my mind based on um, characters who I want to develop or maybe a theme or an issue that I want to address in a new book. But for Pickpocket, the story came about very differently. And in fact, it came about um, originally because of the setting, which is Old Nice in southern France. And uh, Nice is, is right along the Mediterranean Sea. It is this beautiful, dazzling spot. Um, the sky is the bluest blue. Uh, the sun just glints off of that beautiful sea. And it is just absolutely breathtaking. And I have to say that for me, as much as all of those uh, things are wonderful, the, the sea, the sky, that gorgeous sun, the story magic really happened for me once I set foot on those winding, narrow little roads in, um, in Old Nice. And also once I stepped into the bustling, vibrant marketplace. And I still remember that first moment when I set foot in those areas and the thought that kept popping into my head um, from that moment and throughout the course of the day and in fact the week or so that followed was that this setting absolutely, absolutely begs a chase scene. And I could just picture it right away, you know, people running and chasing and, you know, flinging each other aside as they wove through the market. And I knew that I wanted to write that scene. And in fact, I wanted to write the story that went with it. So that is how Pickpocket came to be. From there, the next um, part of the story that came together for me was the young protagonist started to take shape in my head. And my protagonist is a young 17 year old French Canadian character named Jean-Luc, 
uh, and Jean-Luc is um, living in Kingston. He has been on a bit of a downward spiral for the last couple of years, um, ever since his sister passed away. And since then, Jean-Luc has fallen under the influence of some so-called friends who have really been negative influences on him. And they have been absolutely wreaking havoc on Jean-Luc's life and on his family. So these two so-called friends of Jean-Luc's um, have convinced him to throw a party while his parents are out of town. And this party is presumably to celebrate the end of grade 11. And it gets absolutely out of control. So pickpocket starts or opens with Jean-Luc waking up or probably coming to the next morning. And just to set the scene here, it's a bit gritty. He's lying face down in a pool of his own vomit on the living room rug, sort of waking up, coming to, glancing around him, seeing the beer cans, the cigarette butts, and the general wreckage and crap strewn around him. Um, it, this is very definitely the sort of house party that no parent ever wants to come home to. And um, I'll start my first reading into chapter one when Jean-Luc's parents, in fact, do first step back into their home. This is their reaction. My dad drops a couple F-bombs. He usually swears in French. I guess he wanted to make sure the couple passing him at the door understood him too. My mom is standing perfectly still, her overnight bag in her hand. Papa turns to her, go grab the mop and bucket Marie and lots of cleaner. Moments later, my mom shoves them in front of me, start cleaning up this mess. Tears are forming in her eyes. I reach for the bucket. Next thing I know, I'm gagging and spitting out whatever was left in my stomach. Very impressive, Papa says. Where are your fine friends now? I'm sure Tate and Otis had a part in trashing our home. It's Tate and Owen, I say. Whatever, Papa growls. They'd be here helping you clean up if they were real friends. I can't let him get away with that. You don't know shit about my friends, I say. Papa's face turns red. I know they're not the great friends you think they are. He shakes his head. Go use the garden hose to wash out that bucket, then start cleaning up all this merde, all this shit. Outside, the backyard spins and the sun stings my eyes. I hose out the bucket. The water is freezing cold. Even so, I lean over and hose off my head too. Every drop of water feels like a razor cutting into my skin. I pull out my phone to see if Tate and Owen have texted me. Nothing. I take a closer look around the backyard. It's a mess out here too. I kick the beer cans into a pile. I straighten the table and chairs. I leave the squished flowers and cigarette butts for later. I don't want to talk to Mama and Papa again, but I need to go back inside. And Papa is in the kitchen. Do we have any Tylenol? I ask. Check the shelf, he says. The one with the door ripped off. Oh man, he's right. I step over the cupboard door on the floor and I reach for the bottle of pills. I swallow a couple with water. The whole time, my feet are sticking to the floor. I can't believe how much beer got spilled here last night. I also can't believe how much beer got drank. Papa storms back out to the living room. He's talking to my mom now, 
la maison est un désastre. He's right. The house is definitely a disaster. Well, don't say that like it's my fault, Mama says. You know I don't like those new friends of Jean-Luc's any more than you do. I clench the glass even tighter. I'm tempted to ring up Anisha and Colin, Papa says. The way they ditched Jean-Luc after Lena took sick. Took sick? Really? To hear him talk, you would think my sister had had a sore throat, not leukemia. If anyone's to blame, Mama tells my dad, it's you. You hardly spend any time here. You've made zero effort with your family lately. I can't hear what Papa says next, but Mama storms upstairs. Minute later, minutes later, I hear a scream from their bedroom. Papa races up the steps. When he comes back down, his face is grim. Volé, he says. Stolen? I ask. What was stolen? Your mother's jewelry, gone. Oh no, oh no. Most of my mother's jewelry belonged to my grandmother. I often see my mother, my mom looking at it with a wistful expression on her face. Jean-Luc, Papa stabs his finger toward me. You will pay for everything that got broken or stolen. He heads back upstairs. I pick up a few more plastic cups and food wrappers. I feel like I might be sick again. I need to sleep off this massive hangover. I can still hear my parents arguing upstairs. It never used to be like this, but ever since Lena died, they can't agree on anything. Screw this, I decide. I flop down onto the couch. When I wake up, Mama and Papa are both standing over me. This can't go on, Mama says. We can't deal with you constantly getting into trouble. Papa nods. I can hardly believe it. It looks like my parents have finally agreed on something. So we have some news for you, Mama continues. We're going to go, you're going to go work for your great uncle, Henri. What? Who is Henri? I'm trying to make sense of this, but, but I don't even know him, is all I managed to say. That doesn't matter, Mama replies. He has agreed to hire you to work at his shop for the summer. He has a large catering contract coming up. And you need the money, Papa says. You will need to work all summer to earn enough to pay us back for all these damages. For the whole summer? I'm still trying to clear my head. Wait, wait a minute. Is this the old guy who lives in France? Are you kidding me? You're sending me to France? Yes, to Nice in the south, near the Mediterranean Sea, Mama says. It's beautiful there. This is a great opportunity. Honestly, you are getting off lightly. I just bought your plane ticket online, Papa adds. You did what? This is all happening too fast. You leave tomorrow morning. Mama rolls a suitcase toward me. Start packing. Well, things happen very quickly. And even before Jean-Luc's hangover has subsided, he is in Old Nice with his great uncle. It's hitting him hard that he's far from home. He's far away from his friends, from his family. And he's wishing he'd maybe put up a little bit more of um, a, a fuss about actually leaving, getting on that plane. Um, but then he's walking along the Mediterranean Sea and he's admiring the people sunbathing down below when something happens. I'm turning away from the view when someone bumps into me. I jump, then I step back. I hadn't seen anyone there at all. 
My first glance tells me this girl is about my age and she's really pretty, totally hot actually. My next glance tells me she's as surprised as I am. I'm a little awkward when it comes to talking to girls, but this girl, she's looking at me with sparkling dark eyes and a killer smile. It's time to speak up. Désolé, I say, sorry, I didn't see you there. Me either, she says, I was looking down at the beach. Me too, I say, look at her face, Jean-Luc, I'm telling myself, not her boobs. Um, uh, do you come here very often, I ask. Then I nearly groan out loud, talk about a bad pickup line. Sometimes, she says, okay, okay, so at least she answered me. Maybe I didn't completely blow my chances with her. Are, are you going this way, I ask. Oh, for God's sake, Jean-Luc. Okay, try again, try again. I mean, are you walking in my direction? I ask. For a little while, she says, I'm going to meet my family. Cool, I say. My name is Jean-Luc, by the way. Selena, she says. She looks back over her shoulder. I'm sure she'd rather talk to anyone but me. God, I'm such a loser. I need to save this situation if I can. Too bad I didn't bump into you earlier, I say. I could have bought you a gelato. As I say that, I lift up the cup. Maybe next time, she smiles. I like how she said that, like she wants there to be a next time. I can feel my mood shifting. If I can make something work with Selena, maybe this summer will turn out okay after all. We walk for a bit without talking. Then Selena announces, I'm turning here. Oh, okay, well, see you later maybe, I say. I hope so, she says. Have a good evening, Jean-Luc. As she walks away, her blue dress sweeps around her butt and her legs. My eyes travel to her hand, clutching her leather bag. Next time, I'll be holding that hand. And from there, who knows? I watch until she's out of sight. Then I turn back the way I came. I climb the cool, clammy steps up to Alhi's apartment. I'm digging through my pockets for my key when I realize something. My wallet, it's, it's missing. I check all my pockets but it's not there. I think back to when I last had it. I took it out to pay the guy at the gelato place, but then I tucked it away in my back pocket. Didn't I? That's when it hits me. I didn't lose my wallet. Someone stole it. Someone must have picked my pocket while I was out walking. I've heard thieves usually do that when the person is distracted. And I was totally distracted by the girls on the beach and by one girl in particular, Selena. Shit, I bet she stole my wallet just when I thought this summer was coming together. Those dreams I had about buying her gelato and maybe doing other stuff with her too, they are all crumbling. So there is Jean-Luc quite newly arrived in Old Nice and already um, he's experiencing some pretty big highs and lows. He is of course outraged when he realizes that Selena is probably the one who stole his wallet. Um, but his anger turns to sympathy later on because he does in fact connect with Selena later. He learns her backstory, which is that she was fleeing from her home and traveling across the country to go live with her aunt when someone offered her a ride from her hostel. And as it turned out, this person who offered her this ride had no intention of being as helpful as he initially led on. He actually becomes her handler. Um, and uh, he requires her to steal a minimum of 300 euros a day. So she's out picking pockets all day. She must give him the 300 euros at the end of the day. And if not, 
the consequences are brutal beatings, cigarette burns, starvation. And uh, so Jean-Luc is starting to feel really horrible for her. And uh, he suggests calling the police. And here is Selena's reply. Don't ever say that. Le patron said, if I ever call the police, I am dead within the day. Her eyes are wild with fear. I will never get to my auntie's house in Toulouse. I don't know what to say. I'm out of ideas. We cannot meet again, she adds. What? Why not? Le patron saw me talking to you last time. He asked me who you were. What did you tell him? I asked. I told him that you are just a dumb tourist with lots of money in your pocket and that I had to chat with you for a few minutes until I could pick your pocket. Except for the part about me having lots of money, Selena is right. Because aside from giving her some money from time to time to try to help, I feel dumber than ever. I don't know what to do. Well, Jean-Luc is at quite a loss until he finally comes up with a plan to help Selena get away from Le Patron. He helps set the wheels in, motions, in motion, hoping that Selena will trust him and that she will take that risk to hopefully go on and have a better life, maybe even the wonderful life that had been denied to his younger sister. For her part, Selena has far more than a passive role in the story. She helps Jean-Luc see beyond his own grief such that he too realizes he needs to make some big changes in his life. And I'll finish at that point by telling you the question that I tried to leave my readers with in this story. And that is who actually helps the other most? Is it Jean-Luc or is it Selena the pickpocket? So I will leave that with you and hope you have a read and maybe come to your own conclusions about that question. And at this point, I will turn things back to Charlotte. That was so interesting to hear you read that story. I was hanging on to every word. That's very kind. And um, it's, it's a very good story. And the way you describe Nice and so on, it makes it very interesting. Thank now, you. I know that you, I know that you, have a teaching background, and so this is switching a little bit. But I'm wondering if you could tell us how um, your experiences as a teacher affect your writing. Well, that's a great question. And uh, I know that you also have a, a teaching background, Charlotte. And for me, um, I can truly say that although I've now been out of the classroom on a daily basis for quite a number of years, it never leaves you. It truly never leaves you. You never stop being a, a teacher or an educator in the same way I guess people never really stop being parents. And what I try to do when I write my books is I try to write the stories that I think the students in my classes would have enjoyed. And I have a real soft spot for students who are teenage um, or even you know, a little bit younger and a little bit older who don't see themselves really as readers. And for those students, I really try to write those books, especially that have lots of hooks in them, lots of interest, lots of action to just 
try to keep them to try to keep them reading. And uh, what I found is that through my own research, through some other talks I've been able to give, that um, the advantages to being a reader are just are just huge. They just set people up for the very best in life. Um, studies have linked uh, recreational reading to uh, greater incomes, um, greater um, relationships, more community engagement, more volunteerism. So a lot of those things that, um, that you know, we think about in terms of having in, in many ways the, the best, happiest life um, a person can without, uh, you know, without being dragged down by other things. So, so of course, you know, things can happen in anyone's life, but to try to, with those sorts of advantages, it really is um, important to try to create readers. And that's what I try to do with my books. Wow, that's, um, that's very interesting. Um, yes, um, I'm sure your students grow and, to, and learn to love reading. And I'm sure you make them um, so aware of the advantages. And um, so um, how do you also help the parents uh, and families of reluctant readers to um, learn more about helping at home or wherever when their child is learning to read? Yes, I, I do have some suggestions that I, I like to offer to families, to parents, if they have children who just don't see themselves as readers. And the first thing I always suggest they do is to try to get to the bottom of why their children just don't seem to want to read. Um, and this maybe involve, involves getting the school um, involved as well. Because in some instances, you know, maybe we're looking at a child who legitimately has um, a learning difficulty or a disability. And so it's important to know why a child does not really want to read. So sometimes there, as I mentioned, could be um, an actual disability when it comes to reading and steps um, that need to be taken from that perspective. Also, sometimes they're just kids who are really busy, really active, and they don't want to sit long enough to actually read a book. And this is where some of my books um, are, are sports stories, because I know that in some instances, there are kids who would certainly rather kick a soccer ball or run track and field or play hockey or what have you, rather than sit and read a book. They're not really good at sitting still and, uh, and, and reading a book. So, um, so that's something that, um, that I think is important to know as well. And certainly having books um, like some of the accessible ones that people like myself and, and many other uh, writers create, um, those, are, those are helpful because they're a manageable size. We put lots of hooks in them to keep students reading. A challenge that I see when I write my books is I look at any page and think to myself, I don't want this to be the page where the student turns the book and closes it and walks away from it. Um, but also, Charlotte, to come back to your point about how parents might be able to help, some advice that uh, we might be able to offer there. Um, I also like to emphasize to parents, and certainly without guilt tripping anybody, but it really is helpful for kids to see that, that um, 
the, that their parents are readers as well. And uh, so role modeling reading is great. And also being understanding of what it is that your child prefers to read. I know some kids really uh, are very much into, um, they're very much into graphic novels. And I, I, I don't fully know why, but sometimes I've, I've been into schools where um, I, I've almost been called upon to settle a debate between kids and the, the students and, and the teachers or sometimes students and parents about whether graphic novels are valuable forms of reading or not. And every time I say, yes, they are, if that's what the student wants to read, hand them all the graphic novels they want. Um, and some students are really into nonfiction. Um, I'm mostly a fiction reader, but when my daughters were growing up, at one point I realized that, you know, my we were at the library and my youngest had wandered off and was in the nonfiction section, which, you know, isn't an area that I usually took them to right away. And at that point, she went through a phase where she read about every breed of dogs going. We're big dog lovers in my family. So if there's something that kids want to read, absolutely let them read it. And I'll just finish this question with, um, with one more anecdote. A number of years ago, I used to, um, I, I, I was talking to a reading consultant and she said to me the number one book that uh, teenage boys often really wanted to read was quite surprising. And I've told this story in, in classrooms and in, in staff rooms. And, you know, the parents, especially the dads, get a little bit embarrassed about this because I think they're imagining what, uh, you know, some of the sorts of stories that, that young male readers might gravitate toward. And uh, anyway, it's nothing horrible, but they're really into reading the driver's handbook. So it is pragmatic, it's nonfiction, there might be kids who want to read all the hockey stats going in the newspaper, whatever it is they want to read, support, role model, get to the heart of, of what those um, reading problems are. Well, that's a great story. <laughs> the last thing I, I was trying to think myself, what was it? And that, that's really interesting. And um, I can see I can see also that your sports stories would appeal to a lot of kids because they have a lot of other things going on plus the sport itself. Mm -hmm. And so, so I'm wondering if you yourself are involved in any sports. Yes, yes, I am. And I'm not, um, I, I, I actually think of myself as a bit of a latecomer to sports. I certainly I played um, on different school teams without, you know, really going beyond the school team level. But certainly I played soccer, I played basketball, I played some volleyball. Uh, when I was in junior high, I was also a swimmer. Um, I was a swimming instructor and lifeguard for years. I was an aquatics director. Um, more recently, I've become a distance runner and that's my passion. And um, I have also written a, a running story that's very dear to me called Taking the Lead. Um, my daughters have been heavily involved in sports over the years. Uh, they 
are black belts in Taekwondo. Uh, they also played club volleyball for a number of years and I tapped into some of their experiences when I was, um, uh, when I was writing Volleyball Vibe, the book that, that you mentioned was part of the summer reading program with TD. And uh, so, so yeah, our, our family is very sporty. My husband is a badminton player, a golfer. He says he's not a runner, but he actually is. And um, we're into strength training. So, so we really enjoy all of those different things. And uh, it's a great joy of mine to offer some of those kinds of stories for young readers as well, hoping that it will pull them in. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure they do. So I'm just going to switch uh, gears a little bit here and um, ask you what you consider to be the joys and the challenges of being a writer. Okay, in terms of the joys, um, I love that moment, the excitement, that rush when that story idea starts to come together in your head. That to me is a really exciting stage. And uh, um, I don't usually talk about my stories until I get to that point, because I find then that the characters stop yammering quite so loudly in my head. But I do love that moment when the characters really are, are, are talking to you and you're just figuring out how this story is going to work. And it's just starting to come together for you. So that I really love. And of course, a great joy of mine um, as a, a writer and as a former teacher is the opportunities to speak with students, um, to um, go in and present to them, to try to fire them up about reading and about books and about writing. Um, those are just wonderful benefits of being um, a children's author. And uh, it takes me back to all of those things that I, I love the most and that I still miss about not being in the classroom every day as a teacher. So I would say those are definitely the joys. Uh, in terms of the challenges, I think most writers, myself included, have a stage of the writing process that we find that we find hardest. Um, and for me, it is that first draft. And just that blank screen is, is sometimes a hard thing to fill. Um, I try to work through that by doing some handwriting. I probably do more pen and paper than a lot of writers do. I also do some dictation. I've dictated scenes while I was out walking my dog and um, you know, just to try to get something down on the page to turn into an actual book that I can submit or talk to, talk to my editors about. So, so that I would say is the biggest struggle for me is, is trying to get that first draft down so that I have something workable that I can mold and shape and play with and toss around lob like a bone around, you know, like what my dog does on the, the kitchen floor, but just something that I can take and shape into a story. So that to me is, is the hardest part. Hmm. That's good to hear. Because I get the feeling everything comes very easy, easily to you. Oh, that's but very I, generous. So, that, so that's, good, that's good to hear. Now, um, I, you cover a lot of topics. And so I'm, I'm going to list some of them. I'll have to look at my list here. So you have a lot of topics, in, including parental child abduction, um, <laughs> um, oh, sorry, <laughs> domestic abuse, 
and uh, so on. There are a lot of them. I won't, I won't try to read them all. But I'm wondering how you do get your story ideas and how you know that's the story you want to write about. Yeah, yeah. For me, I, I find that the topics that really excite me the most that make me want to develop a story about them are ones that have touched me in some ways, which is not to say I've lived all of those experiences that, that I've written about. And as you mentioned, there's uh, domestic violence. Um, I've written about restorative justice. I've written about parental abduction. Um, I've written certainly about a, you know, a, a young girl who's being exploited um, in an international situation. And uh, so what I look for is, is just an idea, something that makes me stop and pause, usually because it either excites me, um, because it confuses me. Um, sometimes it's something that just... Uh, that, that just, uh, that, that, that makes me angry. And those are sometimes the, the, the emotions that I need to start devoting a project to that sort of book. And um, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I wrote Vanish, my second book, um, there was a, a, a situation happening within our province where um, some, some young children had been abducted um, by a, a parent who, uh, the custodial parent had divorced and I kept hearing about that news story about this woman trying to get back her children who had been taken into away internationally to a country where women had very few rights uh, in terms of even being able to call their children their own. And uh, so that was a story that just, I found so deeply upsetting. My, my own children were quite young at the time and I just kept trying to imagine how horrific that must be. And that in that situation, I added that element to a story that I had been wanting to write but it was still missing a few pieces. And I realized that was a piece I could integrate into Vanish. And um, it, became, it became my second, my second story, my second book. So, so stories that, that I hear, that I see, things that directly happen to me. And um, uh, aside, from, aside from that, it's, uh, it's things that we're, we're always told as writers, write what you know. And I think that's good advice. What I also would add to that is write about what you want to know, what excites you, what you're curious about. Satisfy those burning curiosities. Talk to the people who are experts, and uh, and there you go. That's that's how I've done. That's how I've I've created a lot of my stories. Mm. Yes, that is very interesting, and I like the way at the in your last sentence you said you talked to a lot of experts because. Mm -hmm. I was wondering how it's with considering the fact that you cover so many topics and I'm sure I'm wondering how much research you find you need to do and how you go about doing the research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I said that's a great question and I'm going to segue into another one that I see just showed up in the chat okay. here because it also ties in beautifully to what you just asked okay. me Charlotte and that is someone has asked I'm curious about the French Karen did you already have enough French or did you pick up the necessary language for the story along the way and um, 
that is, um, I, I actually had the French going into that situation. I'm um, an, an Anglophone who has um, uh, some French family and uh, a lot of French immersion students around me. And so I, I was very fortunate growing up in, in Kingston, Ontario. Um, I did not live close enough to um, French speaking communities to just kind of, you know, learn French on the fly or, you know, on the streets, I guess people sometimes say, but I was very intrigued by, by French from the first time I heard it. I just thought, oh, that sounds so beautiful. And just to set the scene, I was growing up in a very small rural community. I didn't actually, I was born in Kingston, but grew up in a, a, in a farming community just outside of there. And from the first time I heard French, I absolutely loved it. So I was grateful I was able to um, study it quite intensely. Uh, throughout high school. I'm very indebted to uh, Monsieur E.D., who taught me French in grades 11 to grades 13. To 13. And uh, I also studied it throughout university. And I'm grateful I've been able to do some, uh, some travel to uh, certainly throughout Quebec. Um, I've, I've spent quite a lot of time there, spent quite a bit of time on the ski hills at one point, which is, which is always great fun. And uh, I can, you know, kind of say, oh, well, you know, I'm there improving my French um, as I'm enjoying the, the ski hills. And I've also now had opportunities to, to do some travel throughout France. So, so that has, has very definitely helped. When I was writing Pickpocket, um, partly how I researched was by talking to people uh, in Old Nice. And there was a really friendly cafe owner and I used to go see Mac and some of his regular customers were very helpful uh, with me in terms of just helping me do some of the research about, you know, the difference between driving a scooter and a motorcycle because there are a lot of scooters, a scooter, they say, in, in Nice, um, knowing what was required to drive a scooter versus a motorcycle and just different expressions that they use and uh, so that was really really helpful so I did have the the core French that I needed but I also um, and and the lovely thing is it opened up further opportunities because I was able to talk directly to people uh, in Old Nice and that of course includes the woman who made the the lovely Soka which is, um, is something that Jean-Luc uh, makes with his uncle Henri. Um, I was able to ask her how to make soca, which uh, is, is an important, it's a street food in Nice. And it's something that Jean-Luc makes when he's working for his uncle there. So, so I did have a, a good solid core of French and, um, and, and luckily it, it led to some other opportunities that I very much enjoyed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, you, it's sort of like hands-on with you. You talk to people, you get their recipes for soca or whatever you do. Yes. You're right in there. Yes. And I'm yes. sure that is why the stories just jump off the page. Thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind. Well, it, it's true. I, I really did find, find that. And um, I'm just checking in. I didn't read my chat to see how many more minutes we have left. I wonder. <laughs> so well we'll just we'll just keep on talking, I think, then. Um, it looks like we have about one minute left. One minute left. Oh yes. yeah, yes. I was thinking we were getting pretty close. Well okay. I just enjoy talking to you and listening to you, especially 
Karen. And um, like I said, I have read quite a few of your books already, but not all of them yet. And uh, maybe you're even maybe you even have an idea for when you're going to work on next. I wonder. Yes, always, always more ideas, always more ideas than I actually have have the time to uh, to write. So it's it's just such a joy. And uh, Charlotte, I want to congratulate you on your book as well. And I look forward to to having a read of Love and Courage in Troubled Times. Congratulations to you as well. And thank you for moderating this session. Well, thank you for your kind comments. And thank you so much for giving us such so many interesting things to think about. And thanks again to the Writers Guild and Sadie for all the things they do. And I hope Absolutely. everyone has a good <laughs> a good evening now. Thank you. Thank you.